0: Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about possible world theory in everyday life. I wonder what topics might come up on the weekend of 9/11. I'll start by answering one question: Where were you when the planes hit the towers in New York City on 2001? But I'll also give you a heads up. I'm not really going to focus fully and completely on the events of 9/11 and the ninth anniversary of those events. Instead, I'm going to wait save it for a year, come back to this topic, and uh, give a 10-year sort of perspective on the matter. It seems more appropriate. I'm not exactly sure why we think so strongly in base 10 numerically that that's a more important milestone than any other, but I do know that I took some notes uh, two or three years after the event, and I want to go back to those notes after a little more time has gone by and kind of See what my perspective is like after the after the distance. Did I predict a few things were were going to occur and did they? Was I worried about things that I'm less worried about or more worried about today? So I'll hit 9/11 much more squarely, perhaps a year from now. But to answer the question of where was I the uh, at the moment the plane. The planes hit those towers this is obviously one of those things which for an entire generation is our equivalent of the john f kennedy assassination now the the cliche it's not really a cliche because it's true everyone remembers where they were if they were alive and alive at at an age to have memory when that event occurred and certainly 9-11 is no different i was at work I remember being at work, and it was probably about a half an hour or so into the shift when some of the news started to break, because I clearly remember one of my co-workers standing up and making an announcement to the entire room. This was a room with probably 40 people in it, making an announcement to the entire room that a plane had, you know, flown into the towers in New York City, and that the, you know, that the building was on fire and all this. And I remember sort of leaning back up and asking her to. You know, stop surfing on the web, get back to work. These things are usually a hoax anyway. There's nothing to be worried about. And then, of course, she made a a more quiet but just a sincere announcement, you know, several minutes later that a second plane had hit. And it was at that point that most of us, uh, many people had already gone to confirm her story. Most of us jumped online to see if what she was reporting was true and trying to figure out what it meant from a work perspective, one of the things that it meant for me was that I was going to be in a weird place with uh, with my relationship with my immediate supervisor. Because the person who was my immediate supervisor at that time was visiting a software vendor in another state. I mean, uh, more than just a car ride away. It was probably, a, probably I would guess, a nine or 10-hour car ride and was unavailable. And obviously, when those plane plane crashes started to happen at the Pentagon and in southwestern Pennsylvania, all plane flights were immediately canceled. All planes were grounded. And that went on for several days. Uh, I, I can't speak immediately from memory whether it was more than a week, but it was a good long time. And so now you've got a key, a key member of your team from a work perspective stranded you know, several states away with no ability to hop on a plane and come back. And you know our workplace beginning to wonder, hey, you know, when is this over? Do we need to heighten our own security? I mean, we wouldn't have been a primary target. I work in a building that is essentially one story tall and very, very long. So instead of being um, occupying a lot of real estate upward in a skyscraper environment, we operate a lot of real estate outward. You know, from a square footage perspective, occupying a lot of land. But there was still this sort of unease about it, and I I remember getting hundreds, literally hundreds of emails, because email was the absolute best way to communicate at that point in time, just with people saying, "Hey, are you okay? What's going on? Uh, do you have have you arranged for transportation back to the office yet? Uh, do you, does anybody need to check on anything at your house? Do you have pets that need to be fed? Just all that sort of." Not even really uh, hysteria, just a heightened sense of awareness that something was wrong, and that people needed to kick into sort of an emergency gear and begin thinking at a different level and we were at that we were at that level for quite some time, and that went on for days, but in the immediate hours after, and this is literally the time between about nine o'clock in the morning and lunch that day, the biggest problem, the biggest challenge that I was facing was uh, how to handle this with my immediate. With my immediate circle of friends and we had made arrangements to to leave the work area and go to lunch in a restaurant to get away from all this part of that was because the workplace was really focused on it you know we we didn't mind seeing the images we didn't mind reading some of the closed captioning off the news programs but i didn't want to spend my entire lunch hour in front of a television blaring the news from cnn i kind of wanted a little bit of emotional distance So me and a couple of friends went went somewhere else, and one of those friends, a good Christian friend, uh, really spent a lot of that lunch hour sharing with us that he had some concerns because he was just a day or two away from having um, the weekly Bible study group that at that time was going to be meeting in his home. So. Just because the group met in your place didn't necessarily mean you were going to be the de facto leader that week. But definitely, as the host of a Bible study, you might need to have a game plan for how to answer some brand new questions. Some questions that I don't think people had taken seriously before. And um, he wanted to know, if you believe in providence, that God is in control of all things, and that no power has the ability to violate his will, then how do you reconcile that view with acts that scream to be called ungodly That's an interesting note that we would later find out that <clears throat> these were acts of islamist, not Islamic but islamist terrorism, meaning that despite the fact that perhaps a uh, a large large number of people within Islam would not uh, follow the point of view expressed by the terrorist attacks that nevertheless it is true that the persons who engineered and masterminded those terrorist attacks attached God's will to their behavior. And yet I believe that, except in a very small group of predominantly Middle Eastern countries, it was pretty obvious that no one was going to sign up and say, hey, that was God's will. There is one major exception, and it's going to be kind of the white elephant in the room so i feel like i have to deal with it and this is part of the reason that my friend was so worried about it because when you get something that that is overwhelmingly difficult to comprehend and you're you're stuck confronting something that you can't reconcile in your mind often very bad ideas get introduced to the public square and in my mind sometimes bad people or seriously misguided and mistaken people can twist events that happen into god's will in a way that is completely and totally inappropriate i'm referring of course to jerry falwell i'm going to quote him as directly as i can here using a reference to snopes.com and when i do that i want to ask a question that most of us may have lost sight of at least until the haitian earthquakes in the in the past year or so who was jerry falwell speaking with Jerry Falwell's quoted in an interview, the information was presented in the print news media later as if he had issued a press release or something. But really, his words came from a conversation. And I wonder if many of us recall who he was conversing with. But here are Jerry Falwell's words. He says, and I know that I'll hear from them about this. You've already got that us, them mentality going on, which should send up a red flag. Back to Falwell, though. But throwing God out successfully with the help of the federal court system, throwing God out of the public square, out of the schools, the abortionists have got to bear some burden for this because God will not be mocked. And when we destroy 40 million little innocent babies, we make God mad. I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, People for the American Way, All of them who have tried to secularize America, I point the finger in their face and say, you helped this happen. There's Jerry Falwell's words. And again, his answer, in my mind, an extremely misguided answer to the question of how do you reconcile the providence of God? God being in control of all things with something happening that is so clearly ungodly. So who answered Jerry Falwell when he made this comment? Where was Jerry Falwell at? What was he doing? Who was he speaking to? The answer is Pat Robertson. And Pat Robertson's answer to him on that day was, well, I totally concur. And the problem is that we've adopted that agenda at the highest levels of our government. And so we're responsible as a free society for what the top people do. And the top people, of course, is the court system. And then their conversation went on from there. Now, each of these men issued a retraction. But you know what the truth is? We get used to each of those men making these kinds of very hate-filled statements and then later uh, backpedaling and issuing a retraction. And I've often wondered, in the case of Jerry Falwell, I think the pattern only ended with his death. I firmly believe this pattern would have gone on and on and on the longer he lived and the longer he used the bully pulpit of his television program, the Pat Robertson 700 Club television program in this case and uh, his university connections to continue making these sorts of statements. My issue with it of course is that I believe that on one level Jerry Falwell got this thing completely and totally wrong and the biggest issue with it is the how unauditable their opinion is. Anyone could stand up point a finger at those events and attach their own list of pet special projects and, and say that because this happened it's god's will and it's god's will because the things that i care about have somehow been compromised ignored or violated how would it be any different for a, a gay and lesbian alliance to stand up and say that those towers being attacked being hit by planes the pentagon being hit by a plane the other plane crashing were all because of the way the united states of america has refused to allow you know people to be well the the uh, the shepherd case in wyoming that i mentioned in the third episode of this where We've allowed violent and and fatal gay bashing to occur virtually unchecked, and that's why the planes hit the towers. Or anyone could come at it from the angle of, well, yeah, the expansion of the U.S. military, the the continued maintenance of the military-industrial complex— more than a decade after the end of the Soviet Union, it's God's will to to let us know that these planes hitting those towers are a domestic act of military aggression because God is letting us know that the great threat facing the United States is not old-school military aggression. It's new urban terrorist sort of military aggression. It's very easy to put words in God's mouth, and it's incredibly sinful. And my biggest issue with Jerry Falwell was not that – He had a pulpit with which to speak these things in the first place. This is a free country. You can't control that. My issue is with the fact that those who criticized Falwell did so with such firm gloves on. No one pulled the gloves off and metaphorically slapped this guy in the face, handed him a copy of the Bible that he claims to love so dearly, and asked him to explain himself. That never occurred. Now, part of the reason that didn't occur is that this is not an easy issue. It is very easy to point at the homophobia of somebody like Jerry Falwell to point at the really nonsensical proto-political ideas of someone like, you know, Pat Robertson, call a bad thing bad and move on. It sidesteps the tricky part. And the tricky part is how do you reconcile this thing? It's very, very easy, too easy in my mind for someone who uh, denies the very existence of God. To use this kind of event as confirmation that there is no God, uh, it's the same sort of too easy approach that Jerry Falwell used. Because in some ways, that form of a very straightforward atheism is its own agenda. Right? You you find a big political event that occurs or a major social upheaval, you point to it and you say this proves that. In Jerry Falwell's mind. He's very focused on abortion. He's very focused on, on issues of gay rights from the opposite perspective of gay rights. And from his perspective, anything bad that happens is proof of that. Well, it's not, it's not much different to say, hey, I've got this belief that religion is the source of all evil, that Christianity is the most oppressive you know, religion in the world today, and therefore anything bad that happens is proof of that too. It raises a lot of questions. Now, first off, just to... Just to dabble a little bit in the question of whether Christianity is the is the big problem, sometimes you meet people who are very focused on gay rights who have a big issue with Christianity because Christianity has currently the most real estate and perhaps the biggest, most public voice, but I don't think very many of those people would trade Christianity for Islam and come away feeling like they were in a better spot than they were before, so and frankly, most of the scriptures that you hear quoted that address head on the question of whether homosexual behavior is a good idea are Jewish scriptures. So it's, it's a little bit too easy to wrap it up the way it's been wrapped up. But I think my friend was worried that when his, Bible, when his Bible study met in his home just a day or two later, that he was going to have to answer some questions that were going to hit him pretty head on about whether or not the opposite of what Jerry Falwell was saying was true. What I told him was this. I said, first of all, I think you've got to protect the idea of the, of the sovereignty of God. That Providence, to me, is not, is not one of the things that we're going to chip away at. That seems to be one of the things we can look at, at least from the perspective of it being a given. If there is a God, he has some providential control. If there isn't a God, then obviously the question of whether he has providential control doesn't make sense. So if you go down the path of, well, okay... If you've got a group of Christians, you believe there's a God, providence is is not the piece where the questions need to be asked. The questions need to be asked in our understanding of what providence is. So, first off, he needs to tell everybody this is a good question. I don't take issue with the question. I did take issue with a lot of the answers, Jerry Falwell's being a prime example, but... The biggest issue there was Jerry Falwell was presuming to read the mind of God. He was making a this-is-that logical fallacy, and it all came down to how important it was to Falwell that God be punishing us. My answer involved a very different approach, and probably had as much to do with theoretical metaphysics as with theology. But to me, both of those are really important parts of how I see the world. Possible world theory is how I understand both providence and prayer. And over that lunchtime on September 11th, 2001, possible world theory is how I told my friend he needed to explain what was going on and how he could reconcile God's will and God's love with 9-11. I'll get into more detail about exactly how that works in a moment, but this seems like the appropriate time to take a quick break and introduce our different drummer. This week, film director Richard Linklater. I wonder if it seems like I'm all over the map here, dealt a little bit with 9-11, a little bit with Jerry Falwell, I'm Going to jump into a film director. How does all this connect together? Well, a couple of things. First in a week, I intend to address the question of the Restoring America rallies and some of the Tea Party stuff that has been going on right here at back to school time in the United States. And one of the questions I want to ask is, what are we restoring America from and what are we restoring America to and to what extent? were Jerry Falwell's comments on 9/11 his way of saying he wanted to restore America from all of the things he listed as bad and to a time when none of those things were public and that I don't believe that Jerry Falwell was truly suggesting that God was reacting angrily to the existence of abortion the existence of of gays and lesbians the existence of feminism sadly I think what he was saying was Put that thing back in the closet, put that thing under the carpet, pretend it doesn't exist. When an abortion is truly necessary for some reason, and I use that term carefully, um, call it an appendectomy, call it tonsillitis, lie about it, hide it, conceal it. God's only mad because we're upfront about it. And we'll have to talk about whether or not that's a fair assessment. But where does Richard Linklater fit in? Well, first off, I can't talk about possible world theory without giving you a pretty good definition of it. And I really like the definition that this film director provides. But before I get into his perspective on possible world theory, maybe it makes more sense to introduce the man. I got a biography online that describes Linklater as a self-taught film writer and director uh, who hit the cinema radar in the early 1990s. And the film that I want to refer to today is exactly the one that really broke him on the scene, Slacker. Um, That movie is described as an offbeat film that follows the lives of a group of bohemians over a 24-hour period. And since then, Linklater has danced between making films that were truly independent, almost counterculture, even experimental, and making films which got fairly wide studio releases. Now, Linklater does not have his base of operations in Hollywood. He's pretty far away from Hollywood, in fact. His base of operations remains in Austin, Texas. Linklater was born and raised in Texas, living alternatively in a small town where the, uh, the biggest employer in the city was Sam Houston State University, but also in Houston. And that combination of experiences kind of led him to pursue a career in baseball, which he needed to drop for medical reasons, spent some time working in the oil industry and offshore oil drilling, but also uh, exploring film exploring film to such a degree that when the opportunity came to make them, he jumped at it. I have a hard time looking at the career of Richard Linklater separate from the career of Steven Soderbergh. On one level, that makes sense because the two men worked more or less at the same time and have some overlaps. Soderbergh's film, The Underneath, included Linklater as an actor. Linklater used uh, Soderbergh's voice as one of the voiceovers in the movie Waking Life, And Soderbergh was the executive producer of one of Linklater's films, A Scanner Darkly. So there's overlaps between them. But I see it almost more as a coincidence of time. Sex Lies and Videotape for Soderbergh came out in 1989. His second film, 1991, Kafka, coincided with Slacker, which was the first Richard Linklater film I saw. The first, what you might call, widely distributed film. Then their careers almost have an overlap, where if you look a couple years later to 1993, um... Soderbergh put out King of the Hill. Linklater put out Dazed and Confused. In 1995, the year that Soderbergh made The Underneath and included Linklater in the cast, Linklater released Before Sunrise. He would later release Before Sunset, and that would come out in a time when Soderbergh was involved in the *The Oceans 11, Oceans 12 sort of films. The big difference between the two is it didn't take Soderbergh long to become part of what we might call an insiders group. When I think of Hollywood insiders, people who uh, have been recognized and have a little bit of power, the power to be executive producers over other people's projects, Uh, nominated for two Academy Awards in the exact same year, in the year 2000, for both Aaron Brockovich and Traffic, Soderbergh has a much higher profile. Linklater, on the other hand, very happily, very intentionally, being outside that circle in Austin, Texas, has done, really in my mind, Equally good work, it's not like he's dodged Hollywood completely. he's put out films like The Remake of the Bad News Bears, School of Rock, perhaps his most successful um, sort of wide release film. but even the movies that we think of today when we think, well yeah I, I know before Sunrise and before sunset, well you know before Sunrise in particular, totally intended to be an indie release uh, very underneath the radar essentially a two actor film with a location is perhaps the third the third key character in it. Richard Leake later, just to use a few, uh, just to refer to a few of his films and kind of set the tone. Slacker I've mentioned, dazed and confused set in high school and only a few years before I would have been in high school. Uh, kind of the wild and crazy, uh, you know, high school team cheer- uh, cheerleading squad, drug culture involved in that. Really trying to capture a day in the life or a, a few days in the life of the high school culture of the 1970s. Before Sunrise, a romantic story, but not a not a schmaltzy one, not even remotely, a chick flick in my mind, and the corresponding film Before Sunset. The other one that I don't think I've mentioned enough is Waking Life, where Linklater used a similar approach to Slacker in the sense of following a whole bunch of characters around. In this case, with Waking Life, he did anchor the film in one central character, something that uh, Slacker didn't have. But he rotoscoped the results, so after shooting the film, and shooting it fairly flat, um, he then animated over the top of the film, introducing not just uh, a different form of color to what was filmed, but also introducing other effects beyond that. And Waking Life also has really, in my mind, a, a fantastic soundtrack, not just from the the impact of the music on the film, but also the sound effects that are in the film. So this is the kind of director he is, uh, with projects that aren't necessarily conceived first and foremost to make a lot of money he has messages in his movies fast food nation being one i think just from the name fast food nation you can assume that he's got a perspective on the way we eat so richard linklater as a director lots of interests really exercises his creative freedom by staying away from the big money the big distribution and the sort of boardroom kind of decision making that tends to happen when you're inside that hollywood inner circle This is not to imply that Richard Linklater is any more of an aggressive auteur than I described Luis Bunuel as being a few weeks ago. Like Bunuel, Linklater believes in a collaborative process and has actually mentioned before that he thinks that it's really important to be very open to people's ideas, to support the kind of creativity that actually gets a little bit of a boil going on a project where anything can happen. You know, some of the best things that have happened in the history of film have been accidental, and directors who control those accidents, I think, lose out. Linklater does not. Perhaps the one best example of Linklater exerting direct control over a project, though, is the opening scene to the movie Slacker. And that's where I want to really focus and get us back into the idea of possible world theory. In the movie Slacker, all set in Austin, Texas... The film literally goes from what we might call one slacker to another. Now, this is not slackers, plural, the overt and obvious comedy that came out a few years later. This is slacker singular. And I think part of the reason that it's really good that he gave the film a singular title is that he is really kind of following one thread at a time. He may, over the course of the film, deal with more than 20 individual character lines and scenes, but it is, you know, it is one slacker at a time. Well, the first slacker was himself where he cast himself in the movie as somebody who has just arrived at the bus depot in Austin, Texas, and has picked up a cab ride to home or wherever he's going. And in the course of the first three, four minutes of the movie, the entire lines of dialogue is Linklater later, sort of stream of consciousness, talking to the cab driver who is essentially disinterested and unresponsive. So what I want to do... Rather than trying to pull a sound clip, I really couldn't find anything along those lines that I was satisfied with in terms of the quality that I could bring in. I'm just going to do my best at doing this as a recitation, uh, going to the screenplay written by Richard Linklater and covering the first scene of the movie Slacker. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS Patient Care and Research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. I just had the weirdest dream. Back on the bus there. You ever have those dreams that are just completely real? I mean, they're so vivid. It was like completely real. It's like, there's always something bizarre going on in those. I have one about every two years or something. And I always remember them really good. Like there's always someone getting run over or something really weird. Um, one time I had lunch with Tolstoy. Another time I was a roadie for Frank Zappa anyway. So this dream I just had was, was just like that, except Instead, instead of everything bizarre going on, I mean, there was nothing going on at all. Man, it was like the Omega Man. I was just, you know, there was just nobody around. I was traveling around, you know, staring out of windows and buses and trains and cars, you know. When I was at home, I was flipping through the TV stations endlessly, reading. I mean, how many dreams do you have where you read in a dream? Wait, 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 wait. Man, there was this book that I just read on the, well... You know, it was my dream, so I, I guess I wrote it or something. But um it was bizarre. It was like um the premise for this book was that every thought you have creates its own reality. You know, it's like every choice or decision you make, the thing you chose not to do fractions off and becomes its own reality, you know, and just goes on from there forever. I mean, it's like – um in the Wizard of Oz, in the Wizard of Oz when Dorothy meets the scarecrow, they do that little dance at the crossroads and then uh, think about going in all those other directions and they end up going in that one direction. I mean, all those other directions just because they thought about it became separate realities. I mean, they just went on from there and lived the rest of their life, you know? It just I mean, entirely different movies, but we'll never see it because we're kind of trapped in this one reality restriction type of thing, you know? Another example would be like uh, back at the bus station. You know, as I got off the bus, the thought crossed my mind, you know, that just for a second, about not taking a cab at all. But, you know, like maybe walking or bumming a ride or something like that. You know, I'm kind of broke right now. I probably should have done that probably, but... Um, just because the thought crossed my mind, there now exists at this very second a whole other reality where I'm at the bus station, you know, and you're probably giving somebody else a ride, you know, and I mean, reality, this reality thinks of, itself, uh, thinks of itself as the one only reality, you know, but at this very second, I'm back at the bus station just hanging out, probably, you know, thumbing through a paper, you know, or probably going up to a payphone. You know, say this beautiful woman comes up to me and she starts talking to me, you know, and um, she ends up offering me a ride. You know, we, we end up hitting it off. We play a little pinball and we go back to her apartment and she has this great apartment, you know, and I move in with her, you know, I, and, and see, if I have a dream some night that I'm with this strange woman I've never met or I'm, uh, you know, living in some place that I've never seen before, see, that's just a momentary glimpse into this other reality that was all created back there at the bus station, you know, gee, and then I could have uh, a dream from that reality into this one. Like, this is my dream from that reality. You know, of course, that's kind of like the dream that I just had there back on the bus. You know, the whole cycle type thing. Man, should, I should have I stayed at the bus station. That is the opening scene to Richard Linklater's movie, Slacker. I've mentioned before that sometimes we tend to divorce ourselves from some of the scientific theories that are out there, especially the more unusual, the theory that we act as a society as if some of that stuff over there is just science and it has nothing to do with my everyday life. This is maybe even more true when the thing that's challenging me in my everyday life is religious or theological, because not only are we motivated to keep difficult and theoretical scientific ideas at an arm's distance, we also, sadly, I would say, have this tendency to believe that we should keep religious ideas separate from scientific ideas as well. So we have sort of two hands keeping things separated, which I think really need to be brought together, especially if we're going to understand some of the potential nuances of how to explain 9-11, in context with the providence of God. Once again, Jerry Falwell got this thing wrong. In my mind, Jerry Falwell's notion that something bad happened, therefore God is mad at us, therefore things we are doing that are bad are the reason for it all, is really incredibly simplistic and short-sighted. What I told my friend those years ago, was that he needed to make sure that his Bible study understood that God did not just have providential power and control over the world that we are experiencing. That that notion that I'm living in this world, things are happening to me, if good things happen to me, then God must be happy. If bad things happen to me, God must be angry. Um, that is not truly faith. That's superstition. And the God that you're worshiping is just big enough to fit inside your pocket he is only God over what you're immediately experiencing and not God over any sort of bigger picture. Now, I would suggest that he's not God over a bigger picture in the sense of the world in which we live in today and experience and all of the causes and effects that are represented there. More importantly, though, that naive mindset represents a God that is not providential over any other world besides the one that we're actually experiencing. What I told him was, that God is providential not just over the actual world, but all possible worlds. So how does that apply with Richard Linklater's fictional screenplay? Simply this, I think that Linklater, in a comic fashion, really did a nice job of connecting the idea that everything that happens to us that we experience in a linear plane from a cause and effect perspective is a possible world. We might call it the actual world. We might call it a reality restriction type thing, as Linklater did. But that's the one of an infinite number of possibilities that we actually are experiencing. But the other infinite numbers of possibilities are all there. So how do you explain the fact that we're in the one we're in? The one that we're in has a lot to do with the fact that humans make choices. Humans make some good choices. Humans make an awful lot of bad choices as well. And I do not believe that it is accurate to suggest that God intentionally thrusts the bad things upon us. The bad things tend to hit us because of the cause and effect implications of the poor decisions that we make. Now, if you take a look at the George W. Bush presidency, we've got some bad things coming our way in the future. I think we have some bad things coming our way in the future because we made some bad decisions between the years 2000 or even 1999 And 2007, 2008, even today, we're still suffering the consequences of some of those bad decisions, and we're not done with the ripple effect yet. We have treated people in a certain manner, and people are going to respond to us in a reaction to the manner in which we've treated them, and we're going to react to their reaction in a certain manner. And these things are going to spiral to a point where we might end up with a really exciting, good, happy development we may end up with some consequences that we're going to look around at each other and say, hey, I can't explain any of that. But we really can't explain this stuff. If you really wanted to dive in to 9-11 – which I've said I don't want to do and I'm not even going to go in a political in a political direction in the next ten, in the next year to look at it from a 10 year perspective and try to break it down historically and politically. But it's not that hard to find historically and politically the roots of the hatred we're dealing with. I sometimes think it's naive when people only look back five or 10 years for it. You've got to go back deep into the 1940s and 50s. But it's not hard to find the roots of some of these things where some decisions were made. And not even just the decisions themselves but how insensitively the communication of those decisions were made that spiral into somebody gets a certain amount of hatred in their mind. They lash out, they get a negative result that reinforces the hatred and you end up with events. What I am saying though, is that every single one of those moments had a different possible world that had a possible world where we made a completely different decision politically or historically, a possible world where we picked a different president, a possible world where we hired a different person to be in charge of, of, interna- of international intelligence, either at the CIA or within the military. All of those sort of things are the really obvious examples. Possible world theory is much more detailed than that. I'm, I've mentioned once trying to explain this concept even to people who are responsible for being salespersons in a retail store to say, you know what? How tightly you tie your shoelaces could easily be your live and die decision. Because what happens if you get hit by a bus later that day because you, in in a lot of uh, pedestrian traffic, decide that your shoelaces are too tight, it's really bothering you. And when you lean down to re-tie your shoes and to loosen them up, someone doesn't see you, nudges you into the street, bus hits you head on, and you're dead. Now, obviously, you died because the bus hit you. And it may be true that the bus hit you because somebody inadvertently knocked you into the street. But why were you invisible to that person? Why did they miss you? Did they miss you because you were crouched down retying your shoelaces? And why were you retying your shoelaces? Because you tied them too tightly in the morning. That moment, that decision, which, hey, maybe the way you tied your shoelaces was because you were in a big hurry and you hit the snooze bar and maybe it goes back to the snooze bar. Or maybe – What you had to eat or drink the night before, impacting the quality of your sleep. These are the kind of things I'm talking about. It's not just that we have this cause and effect going all the way backward. If you're not a Christian, I think you have to say cause and effect going infinitely backward. If you are a Christian, it goes backward to a certain starting point. And causes and effects going infinitely forward. But notice I'm describing this in a linear way. Everything I'm describing from a perspective of cause and effect or possibilities, it could be drawn on a single line. That's the naive part. My friend was going to have to try to explain to a group of friends and Christian believers how it is that this line could get so messed up, why God would either intervene at this point on the line and do something that seems to be so incredibly harmful and potentially hateful, or why he would fail to stop someone from doing something on this timeline. But that doesn't represent the idea that truly you have possibilities going all the way up and off the page in a three-dimensional way forever, and all the way down and off the page in a three-dimensional way forever, at every single one of those decisions, what to eat, whether to snooze, um, what to wear to bed, um, which shoes to wear. You, know, you didn't need to choose shoes with laces. You could have worn you know, a different type of, sh- of footwear. Each and every one of those decisions represents a breaking point between a possible world and an actual world. Okay. So that's, that's kind of a descriptive mentality. And what I urged him to do is to begin the conversation with people who probably did not have, didn't have a real open mind about science, people who were in a grieving or a shock status where they may not be very well equipped to handle such a difficult, challenging concept. But I urged him to start that conversation because it's really important, in my mind, even more so from a Christian perspective, to understand what possible world theory means. Possible world theory means that there are an infinite number of causes and effects and possibilities, and that we as humans don't just make decisions on the only timeline we've been given. That notion of the only timeline we've been given is one of the really more naive ideas that I think you see percolating through most Calvinist sort of thinking, where you've got this um, this notion of predestination. To me, it doesn't work that way. Because you may look at one single timeline and say, well, everything that happened was destined to occur, but you're, you're missing all the other possible worlds. And the truth of the matter is that every time we make a decision, we don't just change the only timeline we're on. We change the actual world we were in to it itself becoming only possible now because we made a different decision that has leaped us into a different possible world. We're always in what Linklater would describe as the reality restriction type thing. We're always in the world that we're in is actual, and the history of that world is actual, and everything that's happening in the future of that world is actual. But we need to understand that every single time we make a choice, a choice as mundane as whether to turn on the light switch or whether to try to pick a pair of socks in the dark, every single choice, whether monumental or mundane, interacts with a whole realm of possibilities. I'm not going to say an infinite number of possibilities, but a wide-ranging set of possibilities where when you consider the possible worlds that each one of us encounter without thinking about it on an everyday basis and how everyone else encounters the same set and how those possible worlds interact with each other, I think you're beginning to see it. Because you know what? I could be driving to work today and get into a car accident that is completely and totally beyond my control. Um, the driver could come out of nowhere. It's just, I happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, his choice from a possible versus actual world colliding with choices I made about a possible versus actual world where if I picked a different possibility, I might not have been in that particular, you know, section of the highway might've been able to dodge the bullet, but at no point does the concept of me making a choice jump into it because the choices I made had nothing directly from my impact to do with the choices the other person made. So this is an extremely complex thing. But From a Christian perspective, I think we've got to do better than Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. We have to do better than to say, hey, bad things happen, God must be punishing us, and say, you know what, there are an infinite number of possible worlds. And it is valid to suggest that the providence of God wants us to make choices, and often choices that are different than the ones we do make. But that doesn't mean that God is not in control of this world anymore because evil crept in. It doesn't mean that God is punishing us because the choice we made had negative consequences. What it means is that there is a near infinite number of possible worlds. And we make decisions that impact which one of those worlds we are living in. But in every single case, God has providential control over every single one of those infinite possibilities. That is where, obviously... I take this beyond even what might be described as metaphysical scientific theory and apply a genuinely theological perspective to it. But to me, that's the worldview that I've, I had well before 9-11 and that served me well during 9-11, when a lot of my fellow Christian friends were really struggling to find, hey, what's going on? You know, this is not consistent with what I was expecting to see. Um, this is an evil thing. And all of us, I think, on some level struggle with the Christian worldview and the problem of evil too big of a topic for me to hit today i won't go there but i will say though that at no point does the problem of evil the problem of pain or any of collisions of culture or any of these things disembowel the providence of god so how does the providence of god interact Um, if if it's all just a matter of there being an infinite number of possible worlds what does prayer have to do with it well, I want to talk about prayer. I want to talk about it on its own, and I'm going to wait a couple of weeks to get there. But for now, what I will say is that in my mind, the difference between somebody who prays and somebody who doesn't pray, it's not the simplistic notions you might hear as an elementary school student in a Sunday school class about God blessing versus God not blessing. It's, it's a little bit different because the choice is always there for you. But what I tend to describe is, well, let's look at it from this perspective. We all know people who, no matter what kind of choices are presented to them in life, tend to always make wrong choices. And I really dislike the idea that some political conservatives have, that people who are on welfare, people who are perpetually unemployed, people who have a cycle of drug dependency are all either bad people or foolish people or stupid people. I I strongly disagree with that notion. It does mean, though, that it's probably fair to say that sometimes you meet somebody who has a cycle of perpetually making poor choices. And what, the way I would describe it is this. If you're in a world, and think of this from the perspective of outer space, you're in a world, what are the worlds orbiting around you? What are the planets that your astronomical abilities can detect? If you're in a spaceship trying to navigate your way through those worlds, um, what, what can you see on the horizon? It's both a question of how sensitive and and well-tuned are your instruments, but it's also a question of where are you at? From a galaxy perspective, have you placed yourself in a situation where all the choices surrounding you are bad? And do you have the wisdom to pick the least bad of those options? Do you have even a greater level of wisdom to perhaps recognize that there is better choices beyond this one? And even if it's not the least bad option, even if it's somewhere in the middle range of terrible decisions, if you can make that terrible decision and get through it on the other side of it, it's going to be a better set of choices for you. This would maybe describe the situation of somebody who's in an abusive relationship who, who would see divorce as a bad thing but may realize that they've got to go through that bad thing to get to better choices on the other side. As Christians, I would say that what we need to uh, do is acknowledge the fact that the number of choices orbiting around you, the ability of your instruments to pick up different options has a lot to do with God's providence in a way that is more universal than that, that is overarching above all possible worlds. Last thought I'll leave you with on this idea is that I believe that people who pray, I believe that people who actively walk with God, I believe that people who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ end up being orbited by a different variety of choices. They find that their instruments are picking up other celestial bodies, other choices, other options, other possible worlds that they might not have noticed if their number one motivation was related to power and control, if their number one motivation was simply avoiding personal harm, if their number one motivation had a lot to do with with greed and possessions. There's a different level there, a different set of options there, and those possible worlds perhaps become apparent to people who pray in a way that may not become apparent to people who don't. Now, I don't want to make a Falwellian mistake here. I do not want to imply that good possible worlds and great moral decision-making are only available to those people who are Christian and pray, or who are theistic and pray. What I do want to say, though, is that people who make the right kind of choices and perceive the right possible worlds are functioning on a moral level which is consistent with the providence of God, whether they recognize it or not. Because so often we meet so many people who have good choices orbiting around them and never see them. Their instruments don't detect them. And the difference there is, in my mind, possible world theory. Do you see the possibilities that are out there? Are you aware of what the choices are? And sometimes all the options are bad. Sometimes all the options are that feeling we had in the gut of our stomach at around 9 o'clock in the morning on 9-11-2001. Where do we go from here? Well, wherever we go, it's not going to be good, and it's going to take us a lot longer to get there than we otherwise might have because we can't fly. My boss on that day uh, couldn't get a rental car either. She was stuck in a situation where the, the best and the brightest and the locals – figuring out that if they had to make a big, long business trip that was going to take five, six, seven hours by car, that the quicker you arranged for that rental car, the better off you were going to be, because it wasn't completely unpredictable that plane flight was going to be grounded for quite some time. So she was not even able to rent a a car and pay the one-way fee that is attached with taking a rental car from one state and driving into a completely different time zone with it. She was ultimately able to hitch a ride, though, with, you know, again, she was working with some software people they were trying to sell us a new product they were trying to sell lots of other companies a new product and what they had to do obviously if they were going to get all the way out to the uh, to the new england area and make a presentation of their product to a company in boston they had to get a rental car and drive it as well so my boss was not able to get her own rental car, but she was able to hitch a ride with those guys, and they just you know, navigated their path from one side of the country to another with a stop in, in our city along the way so they could literally drop her off at her car and get her home. That was the possibility that she had to tap into. And these sort of things crop up even at the worst of times, ideas that you never would have gone for. If I had suggested that instead of flying back, she instead hitch a ride and be stuck in a car with three or four salesmen for nine or ten hours. I mean, obviously, that is a terrible possibility. But in the context of that particular time, the week after 9-11, it was the best possible world available to her. So... 9/11 is going to hit us like an anniversary we're not ready for because we attach a lot of importance to 10 years in a way that you know doesn't necessarily make any sense, uh, not mathematically at least. But when we hit that 10-year anniversary, as it creeps closer and closer into us over the the course of the next calendar year, let's think a little bit about possible worlds. Let's look at things from the perspective of <laughs> it's not a question of whether there is a god or whether there's not a god, and it's not a question of whether There being a God, he is in control of things or he's not in control of things. It's about the choices we make with the possible worlds we've been given, for want of a better word, because there's an infinite number of possible worlds. Which ones do you see when you look around? Which ones do you pick from when you make choices? And if you're not satisfied with the quality of the choices that are available to you, the answer could be to declare that there's no God or to blame him for being completely ineffectual. Or the other answer could be to actually stop and ask him for a better set of choices. It's a very simplistic definition and one that I'll expand on later. But prayer in some ways, especially prayers of supplication, prayers where we ask God for something, those could almost be defined as little more than requesting the person in control of all possible worlds to make some of the better ones more available to us than they are today. Thanks for listening.